Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. This morning we'll be looking at uh, verses 16 of, to 33 of chapter 16. John 16, verses 16 through 33. Please give your attention to God's word. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us, A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. If I had to pick one word... To describe the Christian life, I think that word would be bittersweet. Bittersweet is a great word, and it applies actually to every moment that we live as sinners in a fallen world that's been corrupted by our rebellion. Happiness comes to us in the context of sorrow. Renewal comes to us in the context of decay. Pleasure comes to us in the context of pain. And gains come to us in the context of losses. 
When I think back on my life, probably the most intense experience that I have had of the bittersweetness of life was actually on my wedding day. As we awoke that morning in eastern New York State, we got a phone call from western Pennsylvania with some very tragic news. One of, for Suzanne and I, we both graduated from the same class from Geneva College, and one of our classmates, who was supposed to marry his high school sweetheart on the very same day that we were to get married, he was the star quarterback for the football team, we were both supposed to get married that same day, but we got this phone call that told us that there had been a terrible car accident outside of Pittsburgh. And in that car accident were, was a car with the groom and all of his groomsmen as they were out the night before the wedding for their last time together as friends. And in that car accident, the groom and the best man both died. And all the other groomsmen were badly injured. We weren't sure how many of them were going to make it. That's what we heard first thing on the morning of our wedding day. And to make it even more painful, one of the groomsmen who was badly injured was the fiancé of my wife's cousin. And my wife's cousin was one of the bridesmaids in our wedding. And I'll never forget her face as she walked up that aisle as one of our bridesmaids, not knowing whether her fiancé was going to survive the accident or not. So that whole day, the day that we had dreamed about all our lives, this day of incredible joy and celebration, took place under a very heavy cloud of grief and sorrow. And I'll just never forget what that felt like, to be so filled with joy and so full of sorrow at the same time. Only rare days in life will feature that kind of intense contrast between the bitter and the sweet in life. But isn't it true that for a Christian especially, every day is bittersweet? Every day. To one degree or another. It may be a lot more bitter than sweet, or it may be a lot more sweet than bitter, but it's never one without the other. We've seen that in these last few chapters in the Gospel of John, Jesus has been preparing his disciples for his departure. What he keeps calling his going to the Father. And they're so slow to understand what he's talking about. But we've seen that they do understand that it's going to be a bitter event somehow. He's certainly been preparing them for that. He's been teaching them about the kind of servant leadership that they need to offer to his people when he's gone. He's been teaching them about the importance of the coming of the Holy Spirit, the helper who would be there with them always. He's teaching them about what it means to abide in him. And he's been teaching them about the hostility of the world, the kind of hostility that they had seen against Christ himself that would be unleashed against them once he went to be with the Father. And now in the midst of all that teaching, here in verse 16, he gives them a little riddle. He says to them, a little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. Now, looking back in hindsight, we know what he's talking about. 
terribly confused them. They did not understand what he meant by this riddle, but it's very clear to us he's talking about the most bittersweet event in the history of the universe, the cross of Jesus Christ. In the midst of talking about that terrible, tragic event, Jesus has a lot to say about joy in this passage, doesn't he? Even back in chapter 15, if you remember when we were studying that chapter in verse 11, he kind of summarizes the intent of all his teaching of preparing his disciples in verse 11. He says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He repeats the same thing in verse 24 of the passage we read just a moment ago. He says, ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. Life as sinners in a fallen world among other sinners is always going to be very bitter. But it is the will of our Lord that we be full of his joy. That is his will. Well, how do we achieve that? How do we strive after that? How do we grasp that and gain it? What's the source of our joy? Well, the key sentence in the whole passage, I think, is the end of verse 20. There he says, you will leap and weep and lament. He's talking about the time of the crucifixion and the time between the death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection. He says, during that time, you will leap and weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. I think you have to look at the wording there very carefully. Your sorrow will turn into joy. Your sorrow will be transformed. He's not saying that you're going to go through a terrible, tragic experience, but, but don't worry, good things will happen afterwards. That's not what he's saying. He's saying your sorrow will be transformed into joy. Something is going to happen that at the time you are going to consider to be the worst possible tragedy in your life. But soon, in a little while, you will see that it is actually the greatest deliverance and blessing of your entire life. The source of your very joy, a joy that will sustain you. And we know that. If you're a Christian, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, then you know that the cross is really the root and source and foundation of the joy in your life. The place where you find your hope, the place where you find your peace. The thing that you boast in. Because that's what Paul says. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul says, Far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, we've had the, you know, the romanticized version of the cross in the church for so long that we forget what that was like for Paul in the first century to say that. I'm not going to boast in anything in my life except in the cross. The cross, the place where the worst scum of the earth were crucified and put on public display before civilization by the Romans. The place of the greatest shame in the universe. Paul says, that's what I'm going to boast in for the rest of my life. Because that is the source of my joy. When I was a new believer, I had heard the old classic hymn growing up many times, the old rugged cross. When I was, as a new believer, when I finally understood what the cross meant, I thought, 
I don't like that. That makes me uncomfortable. But, you know, the words, you know, that says, I will cherish the old rugged cross. I will cling to the old rugged cross. And it just sounded to me like superstition or idolatry, and it bothered me until I really sat down and listened to the lyrics. I was missing an important part of the message in verse 3, where it says, In that old rugged cross, stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see, for it was on that old cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. That's why you cherish the cross. That's why you cling to the cross, because it's the source of your pardoning. It's the source of your hope. It's the source of your eternal life. When I was saved in the November, the month of November in my junior year in high school, I know that I was saved by Christmas but because by the time it came to me telling my parents what I wanted for Christmas, I only asked for two things, dramatically different things than I had asked for all the other Christmases in my life. I asked for two things. First of all, my own Bible. Secondly, a big old cross to wear around my neck. Because in that stage, in that sweet stage of my life, where the Lord had opened my eyes to see and understand what a cross meant, what the cross meant, I wanted to boast in the cross. I wanted to wear it around my neck, and not one of those little tiny ones that would slip in under your collar, one of those big ones that would hang in the middle of your chest so that all my friends would know where my boasting lies. I miss those early days of naive enthusiasm. In verse 21, Jesus compares the cross to something very familiar to most of us. He compares the cross to the human birth process because that's something that produces a tremendous amount of pain, but it also produces life and great joy. Now, I learned a long time ago as a man to not minimize nor even comment on the pain of childbirth because I've been told many, many times you will never understand what it's like to go through the pain of childbirth. I learned it very clearly on the day that my first son was born because as I was there at the, my, at the head of the bed as my wife was going through the, the pains of labor and delivery, I got so caught up in the moment that when I saw this beautiful, precious life come into the world that I looked down at my weary wife lying on the bed and in my joy, I couldn't help myself, I couldn't contain myself. I said, wow, that was amazing. Let's do it again. <laughs> I was chastised by my wife and everyone else in the room. But I was vindicated because we did go through it again four more times. Why? Why? Why did we do it four more times? Because the joy makes you forget the pain and the sorrow. In Hebrews chapter 12, we are told that we are to run the race with endurance that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. His joy was to fulfill the mission his father had given to him. His joy was to save his people. 
And the way he was to do that was through the cross. Look at the words of Jesus here in this riddle again. He says, again a little while and you will see me. And he says later, I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ, as horrific as it was, was transformed by the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ said, God the Father accepts the work that he did on the cross. The sacrifice of his righteous life for my sinful life and your sinful life was accomplished. Our sins are forgiven, death is defeated, and Christ, our risen Lord, reigns forever. Because of the cross, think about it, not just that horrific event, historic event of the crucifixion of Christ. Not only was that transformed in our perspective, but all of the suffering in our lives was transformed because of what the cross accomplished. Romans 8, 28, for those who love God, all things work together for good because of the cross and because of the resurrection. It's always a little intimidating to speak on joy, especially joy in the context of of depression. Because being discouraged, being depressed is such a complex issue in life, and we've all gone through it to one degree or another. And the last thing I want to do as a preacher of God's word is to stand up here and throw familiar cliches at you. But I will never back down from saying that the ultimate cure for discouragement, depression, the struggling with the darkness of life, the ultimate cure is in biblical theology. It's in the revelation that God has given us. I highly recommend a book. If you are struggling with depression to any degree, read this book a long time ago. I keep going back to it. It's Martin Lloyd-Jones' book called Spiritual Depression. It's Causes and It's Cure. Now, if you were to walk into a, you know, you can find a Christian bookstore these days, or if you were to go online and look in a, in a Christian book-selling uh, website, you would probably see a title like that and think, oh, yeah, more Christian pop psychology. But that's not what this book is. That's why I love it so much. In the first chapter, Lloyd-Jones talks about the different factors that are involved in depression in any sinner's life. The first factor he lists is your temperament, the way that we're wired. Some of us tend to see the glasses half full. Some of us tend to see the glasses half empty. That's a temperament that that you have both through probably genetics and, and experience and probably not a whole lot you can do about that and you have to factor that in in your understanding of how you handle the dark things in life. The second factor that Lloyd-Jones refers to is your physical condition, the physiological causes that affect our emotions and our mental state. When I think of that factor, I think of Charles Spurgeon, probably one of the, if not the greatest preacher to ever be placed on this earth, incredible, godly, and wise man. 
who struggled his entire life with depression. And there were probably multiple causes, but we know that one of the causes was that he had an acute and severe case of gout that made his life miserable. And it was one of the reasons he struggled with depression all his life. And I'll be the first to admit to you that as someone who has spent my entire life studying the scriptures and theology, I'm not really qualified or gifted to be able to assess how big a factor that may be in your life. There are people who have the gift and the training to help you with that. But it is something I acknowledge as always being a factor. Thirdly, he lists another factor which is called intense life circumstances. In other words, big events in life, sometimes positive, sometimes negative, that are emotionally draining. The death of a loved one, a job change, financial loss, even positive things like marriage or having children, those can lead to depression. And in that case, I think of Elijah, who one day was able, by the power of God, to defeat 850 false prophets on Mount Carmel, but only days later, he's grieving in the wilderness and asking God to take his life. And anybody who's involved, been involved in intense ministry knows what that's like. Even after great successes, especially after great defeats in ministry, but even after great successes in ministry, there's often a, 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 a period of depression that comes on you as you just cope with the, the draining aspects of it. The fourth factor that Lloyd-Jones lists is satanic attacks. Satan is real. He's a spiritual being. He's looking for those whom he may devour. He cannot possess us because the Holy Spirit possesses us, but he can harass us, and one of his greatest weapons is discouragement. If he can discourage us, he can incapacitate us. But the fifth one is the one that Jesus focuses on here that Lloyd-Jones mentions last and basically says, this is going to be the focus of my book. The last one is unbelief. The last factor he lists is unbelief. Lloyd-Jones calls that the ultimate cause of spiritual depression. Now, it is very difficult. If you're in a down period of life, it's very difficult to discern and know your own heart. That's why sometimes it's very helpful to have other wise counselors come alongside of you. But even with wise counselors, it's going to be difficult to know what degree any one of these five factors, you know, what percentage of your depression may be caused by any one of these five factors or what combination of them. But understand that at the root of it is the issue of unbelief. And therefore, one of the key and most important cures for ongoing, when I talk about depression, I'm not talking about having an unhappy day or having a couple of days where you're kind of in a funk. I'm talking about extended feeling discouraged and feeling lost and feeling like you're losing and feeling unloved and lonely. Those feelings can linger. And so the answer ultimately is going to be in faith. That's what Lloyd-Jones is trying to say. He's saying that the answer is what God has revealed to be true, the promises that he has made to you, and your faith that he is faithful to those promises. And that's what Jesus is talking about in this entire passage that I just read to you a moment ago. The source of our joy, this joy, this abiding joy, the first thing he says is that that resurrection joy that he gives to his disciples is permanent. Look at verse 22. He says, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. 
no one will take your joy from you. That's a promise. Why? Because your joy is to be anchored in the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. That's where your joy is to be anchored. If you anchor it in anything else, it can be taken away. But the work of salvation that Christ accomplished on the cross is finished, it's accomplished, and nothing on heaven or earth can take it away or undo it. That's why in chapter 2 of this book, Spiritual Depression, Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about what he calls the foundation of joy. It's what I'm calling the anchor, but it's the foundation of joy, which he calls the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That is where the source the foundation and the anchor of your joy is to be found, and it's what we call the gospel. Think about it. Just take a moment and think about what are some of the lowest points in your life, some of the most depressed moments of your life. Wasn't the root of that emotion, the root of that feeling, at some level, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough as an athlete. I'm not good enough as a student. I'm not good enough as an employee. I'm not good enough as a friend. I'm not good enough as a spouse. I'm not good enough as a parent. I'm not good enough as a child. Or I'm not good enough as a Christian. Wasn't that thought at the root of your depression at some level? And that's exactly what justification by faith addresses. Because the gospel says you're right. You are not good enough as a Christian. You're not good enough as a parent. You're not good enough as a spouse. You're not good enough as an employee or a friend or any other aspect of your life. You're not good enough. But come as you are. Christ will accept you. And he will give you the gift of his goodness. In the sight of God, you will always be seen as good as Christ is, which is perfect. That's the source of joy. The gospel was what brought John Wesley out of his deep, long-lasting depression. The gospel brought Martin Luther out of his deep, long-lasting depression. Both of these men struggle with depression severely. But they found that the key to getting out of it was understanding the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Because both of them, before they understood that doctrine, were already highly committed religious leaders in the church. But they were severely depressed and feeling severely lost until they understood the biblical teaching of the gospel, justification by faith in Jesus Christ alone. The only way to be good enough is through believing in Christ and the gospel. But it's not just being good enough, but the real issue, isn't it, being good enough for God? That gets us to the second reason, or the second aspect or nature of our joy, is that our resurrection joy is relational. Resurrection joy is relational. Isn't it true that the greatest joys in your life are in the context of relationships? The joy that you have in your children, the joy that you have in your spouse, the joy that you have in your parents, the joy that you have in your friends, the greatest joys, the deepest joys are relational. And so it is with this one. 
And that's what the gospel addresses, is so that you can be good enough for God forever, through faith. As Jesus says here in the passage, the Father himself loves you. What a statement. God the Father loves you. Let me go back and read beginning in verse 23. Listen carefully to the benefits of his death and resurrection that Jesus describes here beginning in verse 23. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Because of faith, because faith in his death and resurrection... He says, basically, two great changes have happened in your relationship with God the Father. First of, li- first of all, he says, you've got direct access. Always. Bold, direct access to God the Father himself. When Jesus died, the curtain in the temple that separated the rest of the temple from the Holy of Holies, the place where the presence of God was represented, was torn in two from top to bottom, saying that the access to God was now forever open to those who came by faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus is alluding to here. You don't need for me to, to come to me and tell me about what you need in your, your life and then have me go to the Father and convey that message to him. You can go directly to the Father. If you're in me, if you believe in me, you have direct access to the Father just like I have direct access to the Father. No more barriers. John Calvin says we have the heart of God as soon as we place before him the name of his Son. That doesn't mean that we use the word when we finish our prayers as we Christians always should do by saying in the name of Jesus. That doesn't mean that that's some kind of magical incantation that makes our prayers acceptable to God. What it's saying is, Father, I am coming to you on the basis of the finished, completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross and I am walking into your presence, and I know that you will hear me, and I know that you will answer my prayers in the best possible way because you love me because of what Jesus Christ did for me. That's what you mean when you say, I pray this in Jesus' name. That's why if I'm ever asked to to pray in a public place, as many are, and I think especially of military chaplains that are fighting this battle right now, if I am ever asked to pray in downtown State College or anywhere else, And they say to me, we want you, pastor, to pray, but we don't want you to say in the name of Jesus, lest you offend somebody, I will never concede to that. Because no prayer is acceptable to God unless it comes in the name of Jesus Christ, based upon his completed work. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. The second relational benefit of the cross of Jesus Christ is mentioned beginning in verse 25. He, says, he talks about the full revelation of the Father that is coming. He says, I will tell you plainly about the Father. He has talked before about what role the Holy Spirit would play. Going back to chapter 14, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in you. That, that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. 
He's talking about not just that we have bold access to the Father, but we're going to see the Father in his glory. And that's really the deepest desire of any disciple. If you're really a disciple of Jesus Christ, then your greatest, deepest desire is to see the fullness of the glory of God. Moses said on the mountain, God, show me your glory. That's what he wanted more than anything else. That's the greatest treasure, the greatest good, the greatest value in the universe is to see God for who he is. And Jesus says, because of my death and resurrection, I'm going to show you the Father. You're going to see him clearly. And we know that that's often why we suffer in this life, why we go through the dark periods, because the glory of God shines most brightly in the hardest experience of life. When you think back on the pains, the struggles, the sufferings, isn't that when you saw the glory of God most clearly? And that is the greatest good. But then you think, well, but you know, I'm so glad that because Jesus died and was raised from the dead, I have this access to the Father, I see the glory of the Father, that this, the most important relationship in my life, is here, but, but I've messed up so many relationships in my life. How do I know I'm not going to mess this one up? And that's what Jesus addresses in the last section here, where he says that our resurrection joy is dependent upon him and not upon us. In verse 29, the disciples kind of get ahead of themselves. They misunderstand what Jesus is saying. He's saying, Oh, now we understand you better. You're speaking clearly to us. We believe. We believe you are who you say you are. We believe that this is all possible. We're going to be okay now. And Jesus says, you believe? You have no idea how weak your faith still is. When the shepherd is struck, the sheep are going to scatter, just like Zechariah prophesied. When the coming sorrow hits, you're all going to abandon me. And you're going to abandon the mission. You're going to go back to your homes and your old lives. And what he's saying to them is the joy, this abiding joy that can't be taken away is not based even upon your faith. It's based upon the object of your faith. It's based upon himself, Jesus Christ. He is the confidence that you have before God that you will never fall away. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. You don't need to trust in your ability to continue believing. He will hold on to you. No one can take you out of his grasp, he has said. The confidence that we have in the tribulations of life, even the death, and even if, as we look back at the cross, the death of our Lord and Jesus Christ, our confidence is in the promises of Christ. He is faithful, and he has overcome the world. Nothing can thwart his promise. Nothing can undo what he has done. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Jesus described the life of a disciple here in this passage with three terms. Peace, tribulation, and joy. Bitterness, and sweetness. We get up every morning and pray that our days will be only sweet. Only good things will happen. But the reality is our jobs are bittersweet, our marriages are bittersweet, our parenting is bittersweet, our ministry and fellowship in the church is bittersweet. And it will be that way until Christ comes again. 
But Jesus Christ is risen, and that's why Paul says as a command, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. I want to close just by reading just a short passage from this book I've been recommending to you. At one point in early in the book, Lloyd-Jones appeals to Psalm 42. And there's actually in Psalm 42 and 43, it says, repeats this phrase or these two sentences uh, several times. It says, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Listen to what Lloyd-Jones has to say about that repeated verse. He says, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in this life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday and so on. Somebody is talking. Who's talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now the psalmist's treatment was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul, he asks. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of, who, of, you must remind yourself of God, who God is, and what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. Then having done that, end on this great note. Defy yourself and defy other people and defy the devil and the whole world and say with this man, I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. That is the essence of the treatment in a nutshell. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the promises given in your word today. Lord, even though they're very familiar to us, may we grasp them more deeply. May we hold on to them, cling to them more fervently. May they truly become the anchor of our hope, the foundation of our joy. May we be cured by the gospel, the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ, our Lord and King. May he be praised in the bittersweetness of our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.